Restaurant Unstoppable episode 466 with Rob Perez. Take advantage of every moment that you have. I mean, don't squander any opportunity. Don't squander any opportunity to try to learn, to try to make yourself better. And even when it's a mistake, just smile and keep on going. Uh, right now, I have a saying because it's you know not the most not the easiest time in our career right now. I, uh, my new saying is, "Hey, concentrate on the rainbow, not the storm." Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. There is no time to waste in the restaurant business, especially when an opportunity comes up and you need extra capital. Cabbage created a simple, flexible way to get a line of credit of up to $150,000, apply online, and get a decision right away. Withdraw funds when you need them without reapplying. Cabbage has helped over 100,000 small businesses. Get started at cabbage.com slash unstoppable you can get a $50 gift card when you qualify that's cabbage with a k line of credit is subject to credit approval see terms and conditions all cabbage business loans are issued by celtic bank a utah chartered industrial bank member fdic what's sorcery sorcery is ap automation digital invoicing and time and money saved that's Sorcery. Sorcery allows you to streamline and digitize your entire account's payable operation. Digital invoicing backed with human verification will save you countless hours of work and increase AP accuracy. Say goodbye to your file cabinets and enter the digital world. Go to GetSorcery.com. That's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com or call 1-866-830-0691. And if you mention Restaurant Unstoppable, you will receive 10% off your first three months with no setup fees. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Rob Perez. Rob, my man, are you feeling unstoppable today uh i feel great can't kill a man (laughs) born to hang yes so rob perez got his start in the restaurant business as a young man living in california he would go on to spend over a decade between the hard rock cafe in walt disney company i was corrected it's seven years at walt disney 10 years at hard rock cafe and in 2008 uh perez alongside a wife diane launched a new casual dining concept in lexington kentucky Saul Good Restaurant and Pub. In the years that followed, the couple opened two more restaurants under the Saul Good brand. 2017, the Perez family opened Lexington's first social enterprise uh, restaurant, Deviate Kitchen, with the mission to provide a second chance for individuals recovering from alcohol and drug addiction. Man, I had such a blast just diving into your story, Rob, and uh, finding out how you got to where you are today. I don't want to give any spoilers, but I have a feeling this is going to be a good one. I don't want to put any pressure on you, but man, I'm pumped for this, uh, this conversation. It's going to be good. But before we dive into it, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you have for us? Okay. You got to know your numbers, but I'm not talking about your P and L's. P and L's are important, but you really need to know what your level, mm. your number is every single day, because if you're a seven, no one's ever going to be higher than a seven in the restaurant that you're in. If you're a 10, those same people might be nines. Yes. 
Yes, man. I love it. You're either adding to or taking away from a situation. So you always got to show up every day being that person that's lifting everyone up. Uh, and that's kind of, am I on the same page as you? Or are we speaking the same language right now? Yeah. I, I mean, for me, uh, I had a boss come to me one time and he said, hey, you're doing great. I want to tell you a universal truth. He says, you come into this restaurant every day and you're a seven. No one will be higher than a seven. But you'll have all kinds of people that are fours, fives, and sixes. Same restaurant, same people, same menu, same everything. But you're different and you're a nine or a ten. No one will ever exceed your number because you're the leader. But the same people, same menu, same place, right? They'll all be seven, eights, and nines if you're a nine or a ten. And then he walks away from me saying, where do you want to work? Your choice. Oh, man. And uh, so it was pretty powerful. It, oh, changed, it changed the way I thought about leading. That's awesome. That's a great way to get this thing started. And um, let's kind of go to where it all started for you. So uh, from what I was able to gather, you grew up in a, a, a family, a farming family. Uh, that wasn't your deal. And uh, kind of what happened from there? Well, I mean, I, I thought that I was going to be a farmer. You know, I didn't. I explored other things, but I thought I wanted to be a vet. I wasn't very good in school. Thought I wanted to be an architect. Wasn't very good in math. <laughs> so I didn't know really, really what I wanted to do, but I was heading towards, uh, you know, some, something to do with farming. I just didn't know what. Then I was pretty aimless, and I didn't know what I was doing. And um, I had uh, to make a decision about going to school next. I was at a junior college in California, and I decided to go to a, a school in Fresno, in Fresno, California, and I needed a job, you know, and I just thought, well, I'll try a restaurant. And I got a job at this restaurant, and I was so, uh, I had always loved restaurants, and I loved food, and my parents always, ex- you know, let me experience and explore food in a big way. I'm an only child, so it was luck- I was lucky enough to have that happen. But I went into this restaurant, got the job, and I was so naive about the restaurant business. When they had hired me, they said, so do you have any questions? And the two questions I had, I said, well, yeah. I said, I don't know how much I make. And they said, well, you're going to make minimum wage and tips. I go, a food server makes tips? I was so excited. And they said, well, yeah, you know you're a waiter, huh? And I said, I'm a waiter? I had no idea. I thought I was a food server. I had a slotted spoon and a hairnet and I was going to serve food, right? <laughs> so I had no idea that that's what I was hired to do. Oh, man, that's great. Um, so then they asked me what your second question is and I, I was too embarrassed to ask the st- second question. So I, I just moved on. And uh, I instantly knew I loved it. They asked me, uh, hey, <laughs> you know, when I start meeting people? And I said, yeah. And they took me up to the host stand and I met this 18-year-old hostess that I thought was pretty hot. <laughs> and next month I'll be married to her for 30 years. Oh man, that's awesome. Oh man. Yeah. So it is it, that, you know, that po- point in my life has been pivotal. I found a career I love and I found the woman that I want to spend eternity with. I mean, I love her and it's been awesome. Oh man, I love it. So what reflecting back at this time, was it in that moment where you kind of convinced that this was going to be your path or like, when did you know that your life was going to be committed to food and beverage hospitality? Almost immediately. I mean, I absolutely loved uh, everything about it. I love the interaction with both product, uh, people, uh, customers. I mean, it's a really unique business where I'm more of a magazine than a novel anyway. 
And so I love to be able to figure out how to figure out a plumbing problem. I love to figure out how to get the next special. Then I love to deal with the dishwasher and the mayor. I love the people. I love the customers. And it's so hard a lot of times to get people motivated to do what they're supposed to do. So it's such a mental and intellectual pro- you know, issue as well. So I love the physical nature of it, probably the, the farming background. I love being both a blue collar worker and a white collar thinker. Mm, that's so cool. A uh, great way to, to look at it too. So how many years did you spend at this first restaurant before? How many years did you spend in the industry before getting on board with the Hard Rock? Okay, so the president of the company that I worked for after I was with uh, with Cask and Cleaver is the name of the restaurant. Okay, uh, he left after I was there for two and a half years, and he called up and said, "Hey, I need someone you know young and dumb and can work a lot and help figure out how to grow the Hard Rock Cafe." And there was only seven restaurants at the time internationally in in, in America, and so uh, they were trying to figure out how to grow the business. So I was lucky enough to have a hand in, you know, developing the first, you know, real, tra- you know, kind of a traditional application. I got to write some of the first manuals. I mean, while I was working a restaurant that was a $12 million restaurant that was bigger than I could handle at 23, but I got a chance to be a part of all of those really fun, you know, creative things that, that really sparked my interest in not only the restaurant business, but the development part of it. So this restaurant that they were developing, they called you on for, was this the Cask and Cleaver or were they just starting a new concept that was the Hard Rock? Or I'm No, he got hired to go to the Hard Rock and he asked me to come with him. Okay. And how long had the Hard Rock been around at this point? Um, well, this is in 1987 and uh, they the first Hard Rock was in London in 1974. They built New York, which was uh, the second one in 1984 and then the two owners split up. And so one took half of the world and the other took the other half. <laughs> Excuse me. I went uh, to work for the group that was the East Coast, Mexico, all of Europe, uh, all of Asia. And so there were two separate companies at the very beginning, interestingly enough. Okay. And so, uh, but in total, there was only seven restaurants when I started. Okay. So you joined Hard Rock and, and how many, you say seven restaurants? There are seven. Okay, so 1987, uh, you joined with seven restaurants. You're going with your uh, manager uh, to tackle this project. Where was Hard Rock at this point, like with their systems, their processes, their procedures? How, from where you were, how did the Hard Rock evolve? How did they start implementing different things? Like from your side, from your perspective, looking in, what did that look like? Oh gosh, yeah. So really, the challenge was trying to figure out how to go from a, a very strong monolithic, monolithic spiritual leader, which I would say Isaac Tigret was, yeah. and then trying to figure out how to keep all of the spiritual, wonderful, visionary stuff that he did, but, but try to be able to hire, train, and execute as a well-oiled machine, because you have to make money. You have to be able to teach. I mean, our orientations were we had 420 people that were at orientation. You can't really... You know, you have to be fairly sophisticated about your systems and your training processes in order to transfer the knowledge to the people that you're trying to train. Mm-hmm. And so we had to really develop everything because there wasn't, there really wasn't anything. It was very rudimentary. 
Yeah. Uh, when I first got to, to the hard rock. So what's that process of developing these uh, systems, these processes? I'm curious, where was hard rock going to at this time to learn about, you know, like this, these are the, this is the formula to success, you know, systems, processes, procedures, culture, that it sounded like they had the culture down, but where were they going to, to realize that like, if we're really going to scale this thing, we need to systematize, we need to get onboarding processes and all this stuff. Like how do they know that's what they had to do? Yeah, well, I think that they knew that they wanted to grow and they had taken some, uh, you know, some institutional money. Mm-hmm. So I think that they were prodded into probably doing that and they knew that they that they had to. And I think that that's why they hired the guy from Casting Cleaver. His name is Jim Stanley. And, you know, he's one of my mentors. And what he was, he was a great systems guy. Um, the Casting Cleaver had a real good uh, culture of service. Uh, they had a strong commitment to quality food. And I think that he was the really instrumental in developing those. And I think that that's what they saw in him. And that was and, Jim Stanley. Uh, you said it was his name. Jim Jim Stanley. Okay. Yes, sir. Cool. Um, and uh, he was he was he's he's an amazing guy. Still wonderful, wonderful boss. Great person. And uh, he really had the vision on how to grow it. And there was a direct uh, and deliberate emphasis on trying to figure out how to grow company stores and then franchise stores because uh, they wanted to ramp up the the the. Uh, the expansion fast because there was institutional money at the time. Okay. Um, so I'm curious, um, in this 10 years you spent with hard rock, uh, under the mentorship of Jim Stanley and others, uh, is there like one big takeaway, one big lesson, one huge, like aha moment that you had during this time that you can share with us? I, I mean, I think just take advantage of the moment. You know, I had an interesting thing happen with another mentor of mine that ended up taking me to Disney, but he invited me over and said, Hey, I hear you. He came into a restaurant. I was the general manager of the Orlando hard rock. And he said, Hey, I have a, something interesting for you. Can I, I know you like real estate. Why don't you come over to my office? And I'm, I, I'm going to tell you about it. So I go into his office and he says, I need someone to come go look for a site in San Antonio, Texas. And I want you to find everything out about where a hard rock should go. I want developers. I want to know food specials. I want to know seasonality. I want to know everything about tourism there. And so uh, as I left, I went into Jim Stanley's office and he says, hey, Art wanted to talk to you. What did he want to talk to you about? He says, well, he wants me to go to San Antonio. He goes, are you kidding? He goes, wow, that's kind of cool. Why did he say that? He goes, well, I said, well, I have kind of a funny thing. He thinks he has me confused with someone else. He said, Hey, I hear you like real estate. I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> so he, he's confused me with someone else. Well, that trip led me to become the director of new openings, which oh, wow. put me in the development side. And that just that mistake. I went to San Antonio and I busted my hump. I stayed up for four straight days and I tried to gather all the information I could. I came back and showed him what I found and he instantly gave me a, a a job in development. Wow. And it really changed kind of who I am, uh, how I thought about things. I went from an operator to, to, to something a little bit more and it's changed the trajectory of my career. So, you know, Hey, look, if, if you're the blind squirrel, just take advantage <laughs> of that nut man. just, just really go after it. And, you know, good things happen to even mistakes and um, every opportunity. And I'm trying to uh, to gather the, the words you use when I ask the question. Was it just be in the moment? What, what, what was the lesson, the big takeaway there? Yeah, really take advantage of every moment that you have. Mm. I mean, don't squander any opportunity. Don't squander any opportunity to try to learn. 
to try to make yourself better. And even when it's a mistake, just smile and keep on going. Yeah. Uh, right now I have a saying because it's, you know, not the most, not the easiest time in our career right now. I, uh, my new saying is, hey, concentrate on the rainbow, not the storm, yes. you know, and, and, and just really just, just focus in on what is at hand and try to make it great. Even though it's a crappy project, I could have said, San Antonio, I have so much other stuff to do. This is a total pain in my butt. It kind of created an environment at home where I had other things to do, but he asked me to go and I, he booked my flight the next week. And so I could have, you know, complained and, you know, really been bummed about it. But I said, I'm going to throw myself into it. I'm going to try to do a good job. And it turned into a way different career path. That guy offered me a job to go back, go to the Walt Disney company. He was the, he was the head of the division that I went to. What if I wouldn't have put my whole soul and heart into it? Yeah. I mean, that would have been an opportunity I missed. Absolutely. And this is a good segue into the next part of your career, uh, which was the seven years after the 10 years at Hard Rock. You spent the seven years with the Walt Disney Company. Uh, Why did you leave Hard Rock for Walt Disney? What was going on there? What was the, the reason to leave? Well, uh, Michael Eisner was in a group of people and they were debating on whether or not they were going to uh, buy ABC, which had a piece of ESPN. They own 80% of ESPN. And they thought that the jewel was really going to be ABC. Uh, in hindsight, it really was, uh, was ESPN. But they were concentrating on ESPN and said, what could we do with ESPN to expand the brand? And this was the weekend before they purchased it. They called up my, the CEO of, of Hard Rock at the time, Art Levitt, and they said, hey, if we bought ESPN, would you leave the Hard Rock and do the same thing for ESPN that you did for the Hard Rock? And at the time, the darling of the restaurant industry was theme restaurants. Uh, 9-11 kind of changed some of that. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, at the time, it was the hottest thing. And I don't know what the conversation was between Michael Eisner and, and Art Levitt, who had a previous uh, working relationship. But I'm assuming that it was pretty positive. Uh, when Art got asked to go to Disney, he asked me to go along with him and try to help figure out trash cans, office space, and and concepts at the same time. Okay. So uh, this time, uh, developing the ESPN, ESPN brand, uh, or sorry, man, I can't talk right now. Uh, during that time, developing ESPN zone brand, what were the big lessons uh, between just developing the brand and uh, I guess the seven years of, of scaling that? Like, what did that look like? Any, what were the big lessons there? Oh, gosh, there were so many lessons. I mean, at the end of the day, my personal biggest lesson there is I, I should have delegated a lot more. I mean, I try to take on everything and try to do it all. I almost killed myself, mm. you know, at great cost to me, my relationships. I mean, it really injured my marriage, to be honest. And I had to really, you know, figure out how to fix that. So, and I, I just can't be Superman. So you should have delegated more. Was there a point where you recognized the, the significance of delegation? And, and did you start to transition to a manager and operator who was delegating? Like, what did that transition look like? Well, I mean, I think it, it's a stumbling transition. I think it's something I deal with and have to focus in on every day still. Okay. Uh, I want to do it all. I want to multitask. I want to do it. I, I want it to be a certain way. So I, I, I do it to myself all the time. However... I've learned to have a little bit better balance, uh, not so much at work, to be honest, but I have a better balance with home, uh, with my spirituality. I have a, a, a more balance with being healthy. 
uh, in the way I eat, but also, you know, how I exercise. So at the end of the day, uh, I haven't really licked the whole delegation thing exactly, but I have gotten much healthier in the rest of my life uh, outside of work. Okay. So it's kind of, I, I don't have the answers at work, Eric. I <laughs> yeah, wish I did. So when you're looking back at the time at ESPN uh, and you said I, you should have delegated more, um, I mean, what, what did your life look like? I mean, were you burning out? Like what, I mean, yeah. What, just we opened up the very first, we opened up the very first restaurant and I worked 11 straight months without a oh, day wow. off. Wow. And, uh, and I still look back at that fondly, but I, I, I think I'm kind of mad about it to be honest. And it affected everything after that it affected my relationships at Disney. It affected my relations at home. I mean, Dive in I deeper. Was what was pissed, going on? Like, what, what were the relationships looking like? What were the, these interactions looking like? How were you feeling? What was, what was going on emotionally after 11 months? What I felt like I didn't have enough help and I held others accountable for it. And, uh, I'm a hard charger. So combine that with, I want this for my group now and being mad at everybody for just kind of being on the sidelines when I was there every day. And I, I was mad. I mean, I can't lie to you. I, I, didn't handle it well. I was too immature. I was too prideful. And frankly, I thought I was, you know, I could do it all myself. And that overblown sense of self is just, it's tragic. Mm. So uh, you were mad because you weren't getting the help you felt like you needed. Knowing what you know now, uh, how would you have gone about uh, confronting these people who you felt like were putting you in this position? Well, I mean, I didn't ask for help. It was my 100. I take 100% ownership for it. I mean, if you don't say you need help, how, you know, who's going to listen? You know, I mean, it's not, I mean, everybody else was busy on the other things growing that division. And so I, I, you know, I, I put it on on myself. I didn't want to give up control. And so, uh, I think it first needs to lie squarely with me and i guess whenever i asked for help it was too late mm. you know it was it was hey other people had other things how can you free up the resources of the people and i i created the whole thing myself and and i'm i'm the one to blame to be honest okay so um aside from learning uh, a lot about yourself and the the significance of speaking up and asking for what you need uh instead of just like trying to do it all yourself and not delegating what were some of the other uh key takeaways. Uh, how did you evolve as a professional during the seven years with ESPN? Well, I think I, I learned so much about strategic thinking, uh, planning, budgeting. Um, what Disney does is, you know, at the time you're kind of bummed out because you have a five-year plan then you have uh, a year plan. Then you have to adjust your year plan and your five-year plan then your annual operating plan. I mean, it was a lot. But what it did was that it tried to teach you how to forecast and it, and it tried to make you be able to defend or explain your position on who you wanted to hire, why you wanted to hire them, what was their role going to be. Instead of, you know, at the Hard Rock, we kind of just did things fast and furious. It was more of a motion than a plan. And I think that that's what I learned most there. Um, and, and then the attention to quality. Mm-hmm. I mean, Disney is a quality business. They're really incredibly great, specifically at marketing. Okay, so you learned how to be uh, intentional, is what it sounds like. Uh, really, yeah, not just good yeah. way to put it. Okay, so what can you give us uh, specifically, and how to how to to plan, uh, how to be strategic? Was there a, a formula you use, a, a procedure you used? Uh, 
a, like anything that we can like literally take and adapt and put into our restaurants today? Yeah, I mean, I guess the best example of that is how I try to think about a brand. And this was a culmination of just listening to people as, uh, as we kind of develop different brands. But the way that, that I was taught to think about it was to think about a, a brand new brand as a, as a country, okay? If you think about countries, they have customs, they have flags, they have their own language, they do things that you know, are unique to them. Culture. Then what happens, people start to identify with those customs, those flags, those colors, those, the things that they're a part of. People like to, to feel like they're part of a fiefdom, right? Yeah. And so at the end of the day, uh, I started thinking about starting restaurants in the same manner. And let me give you a real world example. When I want a coffee, I know that I'm going to see that crazy lady in green. And when I go into those places, I, I know that, that I'm going to have to have my own language. You know, I get, uh, you know, a, a tall uh, skim milk latte. Now it's almond milk, but you know, I know that. And the cool thing is, is that they're always going to call me, Hey Rob, you know, and I get to hear my name. How cool is that? And they're so good at it. They've convinced me that the smallest size they sell is a tall and I call it a tall. And, you know, that's one example of how, you know, to, to kind of get the language, the culture. I mean, they've convinced America, uh, the world now, to, to pay $4 for a coffee. Yeah. If you would have told us that 25 years ago, we would have called you rocker. crazy. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of an example. Okay. Um, and, and I think now I take that idea of having an organizing principle that I could create with a brand. Let me tell you how I did it with Saul Good. Okay. I came up with an idea uh, because when we were at Disney, people said, Hey, don't build a sports bar just before we're going to build the SPN because it's, it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Right. So what they really wanted, the women kept on saying, I wanted a place where I wouldn't hate it, but my, my family would like it too. So I came up uh, with this crazy organizing principle that we wanted to to build a pub that women wouldn't want to that would women wouldn't hate. Yeah. So what what I did was I said, okay, well let's come up with an organizing principle based on a story. So we came up with an idea between my wife and I that that Saul Good was a jeweler on the East Coast. He went and he uh, went every Saturday to work with his father in the jewelry store. The jewelry store. Um, was kind of the center of the neighborhood. People would come in and talk to his parents. At the end of every Saturday, he really fell in love with going to the local uh, pizza joint and talking about sports and all that kind of stuff with his dad and his friends. And and they they had good food, good conversation. And he grew up and he ended up taking over uh, Saul Good Jewelry Store. Okay? And at the end of his career, he kept on, he would buy and sell jewels all over the world and he would love Belgium. It's a, it's, you know, it's a place where the diamond mart is in Europe. And, uh, he fell in love not only with Belgium, but the food. He loved chocolate. He loved beer. He loved the waffles. And he started picking up all kinds of recipes for his, uh, his friends and family as he traveled to Asia, he picked up a Szechuan sauce. Now, when he went to uh, Texas, he fell in love with a, a burger that had barbecue sauce and, and, and bacon and pork. He loved it. So 
in his development, he uh, he found out that he loved the jewelry store, but he really, really, really loved entertaining. So he converted Saul Good Jewelry Store into Saul Good Restaurant and Pub. He kept the chandeliers. He kept the mahogany cabinet and turned it into a bar and a host stand. He had diamond-shaped lights over the bar. Over the bar, he you know he did everything to convert it. And because his primary focus was women, he had thin cut fries, not steak fries. Mm-hmm. He had uh, chicken tenders instead of you know the bone in buffalo chicken. Yeah. He did you know he did uh, beer. He figured out that he had to shove everything through the woman filter because that's his experience. So he has 16 draft beers and they all come in individual glasses like a chalice for, for the Stella Artois. That uh, They have a big giant 23-ounce uh, beautiful stein for any kind of hepavicin. And so we created this whole idea of a pub for a woman through that story. And now all of our staff members know that story and they understand and they can defend it. They know who our core guest is. They know what our product is. When, they, when our chefs try to come up with specials, they know to shove it through the female filter. Yeah. And they present it to women before they present it to men. And they get the feedback. So does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm trying to think about the comparison it comparing it to um the uh starbucks example i'm pretty sure that you didn't say starbucks so i'm pretty sure we're all on the same page there uh so how would you say that most uh corresponds to the, the starbucks example tying those two okay comparing those two. so so what starbucks did is they created a space and in the first 15 years of the starbucks ex- example they were brilliant because what they did was is they focused on place and they changed where we went and hung out mm. and coffee was the byproduct of it. Okay. And I, and I really feel like I've never, you know, read any Starbucks books, but I think that was the brilliance of Starbucks. They concentrated on the experience. Mm. Yeah. They branded it. Yeah. They made the coffee, you know, so that we knew what we were going to get everywhere but they had an experience that you never had with coffee before, right? And the Starbucks thing is strong because uh, they built a brand that you could identify, a cup that you knew, a language that you could buy into. Yeah. And they had colors that you looked at. They, the language, what, what do you get when you go to a Starbucks? I, I, I honestly don't go to Starbucks because I couldn't. I was like, oh, I just want a black coffee. And I couldn't speak the language. So I never went back. But, uh, <laughs> well, but you know what? What you did get was a whole bunch of people yeah. that were passionate about it, that no, were I totally fired up about yeah. it. Yeah. And, and, and it was kind of fun to try to learn. It intimidated a whole lot of people. Yeah. Think about going in ordering a macchiato and a skinny macchiato. And we'd make fun of some people in line. We'd laugh at what they got, you know, but it was part of that experience. And to be able to have them say their name at the end, it was brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. I get what you're saying. I'm totally picking it up. There's one other thing I wanted to touch on uh, before we move on. I think we kind of skipped over it because of the example that you gave us. Uh, You in 2004, I'm assuming, is when you got out of the ESPN zone because you said you spent seven years there. So it was 87 to 2000 or sorry, 97 to 2004. Uh, I went... uh, I went to ESPN Zone in 90, uh, uh, 97? 
no, 95. Okay. And then I, then I left in 2002. Okay. So you're quoted as saying you couldn't do the corporate thing anymore. What was it about? What happened to these companies where you, you couldn't do the quote unquote corporate thing? What was it exactly? Well, I think again, it was my own doing, but I was so mad about not having the support that I didn't ask for. And I got caught up in just hating all of the meetings, getting ready to do stuff. And I probably matured a little bit and I realized the mistakes I made, but I also realized that uh, I maybe had enough experience that I could try something on my own and I didn't want to have to wait for a committee to decide on things. Mm. And, um, and it wasn't that I couldn't do it. I probably just didn't want to do it mm. anymore. Okay. And, and, you know, I, I, I wish I could do corporate again, I guess, sometimes, but I just don't know if I have it in me. I think I'm more suited to be an, an independent operator. So what's the difference? What is it about you that makes you suited for independent versus corporate? Well, uh, Art Lovett, my boss call, called me, my former boss called me one time. I think it was six months after we opened Saul Good. And he says, so Rob, what's it like having your own money in this? And I said, Art, to be super honest with you, I worried way more about your money and the company's money than I ever do about my own. And here's why. I didn't know if you or anybody else in the company knew how hard I was trying. I know how hard I'm trying and that, I'm, that there's no stone unturned and I'm busting my butt. I sleep like a baby every night, even though this is all my money. Yeah. And I... And that's the difference. I I wasn't very good at reading what the corporate people were thinking about my performance and what I was doing. So I stressed all the time. Mm. I was always driven by satisfying, you know, not only the product, the people, but but also just trying to get approval from them. So when and you, it was terrible. When you made the change to being your own independent operator, what was driving you after? You said in corporate, it was the... Uh, you know, pleasing your, your uh, direct reports and making them happy. That's what drove you. What drove you after that when you went on, on your own? I, I think it's the right things. You want to do good. You, you know, we're here to toil, right? Yeah. And, and if we're going to toil, I want to try to be good at it. Mm. I, I want people to say, hey, that's better than the other. And uh, I like getting a group of people together and trying to figure out a higher standard, uh, a little bit better effort. And that just satisfies me so much. Okay. So um, I love it. Um, so 2002 is when you left. And how long did it take you to open? Uh, it was 2008 you opened Saw Good? Yes. So I went to work for uh, uh, Al Copeland in New Orleans for a year. Then after a year, I came to Lexington, Kentucky. And I went really corporate because my wife didn't want me to open up anything that was was small because I hadn't run anything small since I was 22 years old. Mm -hmm. So I had done hard rock and ESPN and she's like, dude, if you want to open up something, you got to get some experience doing it. So uh, I got hired by an Applebee's franchise here in Lexington, Kentucky. And I did that for two years. And my wife said, Hey, uh, if you want to do it, you can go ahead and do it. Uh, But we're not going back to California because there's no way this is a great place to raise children. And so we decided to open up our own thing here in Lexington and not go back to California like in my head that we were going to do, right? Yeah. So it, 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 uh, uh, those were the two stops in between uh, 
uh, Disney and doing our own thing. So you worked uh, for Applebee's until 2006. I try to get a nugget, uh, 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 an evolutionary point from each of these like phases in your life uh, where you learned something. So what was the big lesson with Applebee's before we move on to scaling Saw Good and then your latest venture, TVA Kitchen? Well, I think, uh, I think with a particular franchise group that I worked with, I really loved that they tried to be better. And I, I really loved that, that they tried to be innovative. I don't, I'm, I, you know, to be candid, I don't think I learned anything from Applebee's in general. Okay. Uh, and that's not a slam on them. It's just, it was just a different playing field and a different level than what I'm accustomed to in terms of culinary excellence, in terms of service quality, uh, atmosphere quality, but it was appropriate for me to work with them for sure. The franchise group that I worked was a, a group of incredible people that really wanted to take a product like an Applebee's and try to make it better. Okay. And it was it was a fun experience. Cool. All right. So 2006, you decide that you're going to go open your own thing. What did that process look like of developing? Um, I mean, you kind of took us through developing the story and what you wanted to create. Uh, what were the biggest lessons you learned about yourself in doing your own thing and breaking out? What was different? What, what were you not expecting to happen that happened? Uh, dive into that kind of stuff. Okay, so, uh, you know, we talked about creating an organizing uh, principle. So what the first thing I did was I got together with a designer friend of mine that does ad work. And so uh, I decided that what I was going to try to do was to build, along with my wife, a picture and a story for anybody that would be involved in our very first Saul Good. And so it's a it's basically a private placement document. And so I used it to show... Uh, I went out and got stock photos of what our food was going to look like. I went and took pictures of what our walls looked like, what our furniture was going to look like, what our rugs were to look like, what, what everything that we could, I took pictures of, or I wrote a story. And in 20 pages, you could go through a leaflet. It had our logo, it had our mission statement, it had a sample menu before we even built it. Mm-hmm. So I would take that to contractors, tradesmen, I would take it to private investors. I took it to the bank where I had to get a loan. But it put in perspective what we were trying to build. And we already knew that we wanted to be a pub that didn't repulse women, right? And so we had that as an organizing principle. And I put it all in writing. And I put it all in pictures. And I gave a story to it. And that was one of the keys to making it a super wonderful process. It was not hectic. It was not crazy. We were able to put it all together without a lot of problems because we got people to buy in to what we were trying to do because we were able to give them 20 pages. When I would do interviews, we were in a construction site. I would hand it to the people I I would be interviewing and say, go through this. This is what we are. Can you see yourself working here? Yeah. And it was great. Awesome. So, uh, any like curveballs with the actual build out or uh, this is the first time. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, you have so much experience prior to this where you, you, you were opening restaurants, but you guys probably had a formula put together for the opening because you're just, I'm assuming you were opening so many hard rocks. I mean, how many hard rocks do you open in your time there? Well, put it to you this way. I, I was lucky enough to build the operate opening manual for hard rock yep. to try to open up restaurants. I have been blessed to be able to have all the experiences that I have. So I came into that, you know, with, with the knowledge of building that manual and actually doing it before. 
So here's what I did find out. Yeah, yeah. I suck as a communicator a lot of times <laughs> because there would always be an opening where the bar wasn't right, that it didn't all come together the way that I wanted it to, even though I got the plumber, the electrician, the woodworker, the bar manager, you know, all of the people together, the people to put in the draft system, I would get them all together and think that I communicated great. But because I was going through several different people and I had one person doing this and one person doing that, I figured out that when my bar went right on the very first saga that I opened, I realized that my communication sucks. When I'm there every day doing it all the time, it worked perfectly. And so, you know, I really did kind of really have to take, a, 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 you know, kind of notice of that. And I had to change the way I communicated because that was stupid. So how did you change the way you communicated? Well, um, I think I am impatient. And so I give people snippets and I knew that I had to be able to spell out things better. And I think that I run on a super high, you know, speed and I, in my head, I think I say things appropriately, but in my head, what I say isn't what comes out of my mouth all the time Okay. because I'm always going, Hey, chop, chop, chop. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go faster, higher, stronger, you know? And so, uh, I need to slow down. Okay. So you, you learned that you need to slow down. You, um, what else did you learn about yourself during that process of opening these restaurants? Um, I mean, how much I love to be able to create an environment as an independent operator to be able to be a family guy, to be able to have traditions like going to church every Sunday. You know, I mean, I, I miss that in the restaurant industry and I was able to create a really wonderful family life. Um, around my business. And, and that, you know, that really had to take more precedence for me because I was all about work before. So how did you get to the point 2008 when you opened the first restaurant? Uh, it's now 10 years later, 2018. How long did it get take you to get to the point where you weren't in the day to day? I mean, I'm assuming the first at least about a, few year. Months, but a year. And what did yeah. that transition yeah. look like? How did you set it up? How did you get yourself to the point where you could leave and be, uh, you know, somebody who has that work life balance where you can have Sundays? Off? Well, it has to do with volume. Uh, one of the things that I tell people, and I'm lucky enough that I'm older now and, and have gray hair and people want to come and ask me my opinion about this. So <laughs> about every 10 days, I get a, I get a business plan uh, set in front of me with someone who wants to get advice. And a lot of times, uh, their restaurant people come in and they're saying, hey, look, I know that everybody says the restaurant business is crazy. I want to start this thing, but I'm going to keep it small so it's simple. And look, there's only 55 seats here and I'm going to be open seven days a week and it's going to be easy. I can be there all the time. First red flag. Yeah. Here's why. If you can't have a hundred plus seats, you're never going to have enough volume to be able to hire a manager to work with you. It's going to be you every day Mm -hmm. and burnout is going to happen and it's going to go down. And I know that that sounds a little crazy, but but the reality of it is, is that so many people getting into this business, A, think small like that so then they can never ever work their way out financially to have any help at all because you don't have enough seats to do it. Mm-hmm. Second, too many people, the, I tell people the only thing easier than opening a restaurant and more sexy is having a baby. <laughs> and I'm telling you that there's no barrier uh, to entry in the restaurant business. All you have to have is money and an idea. and yeah. It's, it's a curse because seven out of 10 restaurants fell before their third anniversary. 
And uh, I think it's because of that. People are drawn to restaurants. It's sexy. People like it. And it, it lures in people and people lose their money so fast here. So um, I'm curious. Uh, I want to make sure I understand you correctly. People, uh, the reason why they fail is because they don't uh, have the volume and they end up having to do everything themselves because they can't get enough cash flow to hire on other people to uh, automate parts of the business so they don't have to be there all the time. Uh, exactly. Okay. Uh, how much cash did you have when you were opening Solid? Okay. So it took about a million dollars to open up. Okay. And what what happened is, is I, my wife and I turned in a, a 401k and we had $175,000. Okay. Then, uh, then uh, I went to 25 individuals and I gave them uh, 1% of the P&L for $10,000. Okay. So, uh, so I had, you know, a, a little bit to, of, of other people's skin in the, in the game. Um, and then um, I went uh, and then we had tenant improvement money of about $100,000. And the balance, I went and I got a loan. So uh, it was, I think it was a three hundred seventy thousand uh, dollar small business loan, and I went to the local Chase down here and you know struck up a conversation and you know with the, the loan officer and uh, that same person has given us every loan for every restaurant we've had since. Now I, so, I totally get that perspective. Uh, I'm curious. I tell a lot of people when they're first getting started if they're. I think it, it's interesting because you have a different story in the sense that you spent twenty years. Uh, on the edge of burnout, uh, getting the experience, learning the industry. So when you opened your own place, like you knew how to do it. Like you wrote the manuals for Hard Rock Cafe. Like you knew you learned so much on somebody else's dollar. Um, but you were also the person that was there every day, 80 hours a week. Uh, you know, so you spent all that energy learning what you, you know. So you could go and open a hundred seat restaurant and have the cash flow. I feel like a lot of people, uh, I don't know. I, I get worried about sometimes people trying to go too big too soon without the experience. And then they, uh, all, all that overhead that they have to get right to open big. Right. And they can't make, yeah. they can't make, it's, it's a weird, how do you balance it? Like, do you, do you get that perspective? Well, too? Yeah. I get that perspective, but I tell you that that's the counterintuitive thing. Yeah. 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 That's what we think. Well, less capital, smaller place, easier to run. That's great. But if you really think about it, there is no way to work out of a seven-day-a-week job. There's no way to get out of that because you're trapped in between it. And it's almost better to save more money, get more experience, because you're more likely to be able to get out of it. And I know that that sounds weird, and it's contrary to the way people think. But the restaurant business is all counterintuitive. Mm. You know, uh, this is terrible, and I don't mean it to sound this way, but generally, it's not being nice to your staff that gets them to be nice to the customer. And I don't know how to say it any other way, but it's more about having a smooth shift, having high standards, and modeling timing and procedure in order to get them to do everything automatically so they can free themselves up to be friendly to the customer. If they're hurried and they're stressed out about food and how to do the policy, they're never going to be nice to yeah. the guests. Well, by 
it's nice. It's, it's being nice to your employee to give them the tools and the resources so they're not stressed out about all that stuff. So they know what to do so they can do their job so they can then redirect that energy to paying attention to the guests. I mean, that that's taking care of your 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 employee, giving them those tools, those resources. That, that in, a, in a sense, is being nice to them. We don't think of it that way, but that you're empowering them, um, which is yeah. being nice. Uh, I, I mean, I think we're saying the same thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, you said it in a way... It's perfect. Okay, cool. So, um, all right. So how long did it take you to scale from one uh, saw good to two saw goods? Um, our second one, we opened up uh, uh, in in three years. And then our third one, we opened up uh, in six. Okay. So how did you know it was time to go from one location to two locations? How did you know you were ready for that that uh, that stage of growth? Well, we had built up systems and we were increasing sales. And, uh, and we had the people that were ready to do it. I mean, what really tipped my wife off was that she felt like it was going to be a great opportunity for the top people that we had in every position to move up. And her motivation was all about the people. Yes. And, uh, it was really sweet. Awesome. Uh, so when did you, was it the same situation happening from going from two locations to three locations? Did you run out of opportunity for people again and you needed to create that opportunity? Um, yeah, basically. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that, that's what happened. The interesting thing is, is that, um, you know, this is only a quarter million, uh, you know, person town and the MSA is only, you know, 375,000 people. So three restaurants in this tight of an area was dicey. And, 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 and to be really frank about it, it was really great for three years. And now, uh, through a lot of development and a brand new mall coming in, it might not be the best thing right now. You know, it's been really tough, but, but uh, it worked really great for, for three years. And then the synergy between them was wonderful. Uh, You know, one, you only had to have uh, enough marketing that you could do for, you know, you you doubled your money or tripled your money in terms of marketing. We leveraged uh, our relationships with purveyors because of the volume. There's lots of good reasons. Uh, I never, and the great reason for me was, is I never had to spend, one night in my own house, uh, I didn't have to travel to Louisville or Cincinnati or Nashville to do it. So it was great for my family life. Cool. So uh, in 2017, you opened Deviate Kitchen. Uh, what was were the series of events that led up to that uh, to that restaurant opening? And what was your vision for that restaurant? Okay, not my vision at all. Completely my wife's. Okay, uh, you know. We're, we're Christians and my wife really wanted to give back in a way that was more meaningful in a way that you would get your hands dirty every single day. And she had this idea based on our past that, uh, that we would open up a restaurant to give people a second chance coming out of rehab from either drugs or alcohol, mainly because, uh, I went through rehab at 25, uh, and that was the impetus and she helped me through rehab you know, provided me with not only, uh, you know, a lot of love, but she kicked my butt when I needed it. Yeah. And, uh, it's pretty personal, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we believe that, that either addicts, alcoholics find the restaurant industry or the restaurant industry finds them because of the, you know, kind of the, the way that the restaurants work, the cash nature of the job, the, uh, the ability to get out of shifts, uh, easily, uh, if you don't want to work, uh, how many college students actually work within uh, within the, 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 
the staff. So there's a working you know, with there alcohol. Is a party atmosphere. Yeah, being yeah, socially inclined in general, wanting to be with people, wanting to have fun. Like, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, people are definitely uh, of, who have those vices are drawn to this industry. Uh, so you want to create something to uh, serve these people. Uh, what was, I guess, what what was the there's a lot of social enterprise restaurants emerging right now. I feel like a lot of people are seeing the value in doing good is good business. And we kind of went from that, that phase uh, like during the ESPN days where everybody was like, Oh, it's about the experience. And now everybody's like, Oh, it's about, uh, you know, how like the, the psychographics of how people are associate with whatever the mission of that restaurant is. Right. And, um, right. So, I mean, was there a business side to this or were you, were oh, you yeah. purely just wanting to do good or did you see the, well, the good in doing good too? Yeah, it's crazy. So my wife kept on wanting us to do it. And I kept on saying no, because I didn't see how you could make money at it. And she says, yeah, but think about the social impact and think about the spiritual touch we could have if we work with people that were in need. I go, yeah, but you want a social enterprise to be able to be solvent. You want it to be able to make money. And with a cyclical workforce, I couldn't figure that out. Mm -hmm. So then we lost our ninth person at Saul Good Restaurants, not to firing them because of drugs and alcohol, but because of burying them. They're dead. Oh, man. And she's like, hey, you know, how, are you ready yet? No, I haven't figured it out. But yeah, it's really important. We should try to figure it out, right? Mm-hmm. So then the best server we ever had, caught, we caught her doing heroin in oh, the bathroom. Man. And then she got clean, went to rehab, got a job at a fancy urban supermarket. Uh, and uh, they fired her because of her background check. And it led to another downward spiral because some corporate entity wouldn't take a chance on her, even though she went through detox and even though she went through excruciating, you know, mental anguish going through rehab and they didn't even ask her and it broke our heart, but I still wasn't ready, you know, and then my wife convinced me to go out on a ride along in the Lexington and I saw what happens in a not so nice part of town that's really close to downtown. And I watched a prostitute, you know, go and take money and hand it to a drug dealer. And I'm at, I, I saw her arrest record, 60 arrests in 12 years, broke my heart. Mm. And so I said, screw it. I've got to figure out how to make it work financially. So here's how I overcame it. I kind of, sorry. Thank you. Sorry about that. So I said, uh, I said, I got to figure this out. So guess what? I went back to the numbers thing. Okay. I went and I started watching other second chance places and whether it was alcohol or, or drugs or uh, even gangs, I went and I started studying what people did in, in social enterprises. And I noticed some fairly significant things. I noticed that when I went into a place that was trying to meet the second chance person where they were currently, they performed at about 80% of what their, what their competition was. Their food, their service, their atmosphere was like 80% of it really couldn't survive in the open market. And I was like stressed about it. And here's the other thing. I knew who was the helper and I, and I knew who the helpee was. I could see right away who the second chance people were. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, the next phase, which is only about 20% of the places we checked out, were trying to compete with the marketplace. They, the social enterprise recognized that they needed to be good as a standalone and they pushed their staff, whether they're second chance or not, 
to be great at what they did, at least as good as their competition. Okay. Okay. So I would go into those places and it was credible product, credible SAP service, credible atmosphere. And guess what? I couldn't tell who the helpers were and I couldn't tell who the help ease were. Okay. And I thought that's dignity. That is, you know, that's what I want. And by the way, I think they can compete in the open marketplace. This might work. So, so see, that's see, really what pushed me over the edge. Okay. Uh, and that's what convinced me to do it. Summarize what that is one more time, just to make sure it's clear. What was it? That, that okay. These- so when the operators had lower standards because they knew that the people were struggling and that's where they were. They produced lower than standard product and service. But when the, the, the leaders said, hey, I want you to be at 10 every day, they, they, actually, they actually were able to do it. And I couldn't tell who the heroin addicts and alcoholics were when I would go into those businesses. Mm. And the product was actually credible. So, it so like the, the secret is to, to take these people who at a point in their life might be at a, a two or a three and then to surround them with 10. So you're pulling them to that level uh, and, and making them rise to their potential. Yeah. And, okay. and the self, you know, the self worth and the dignity that comes along with that is really what we're aiming for. So what we did is we just said, Hey, look, Here's, here's a way to try to be successfully socially and be successful financially. What if we build DB8 under this premise? What if we said we're going to aim for 20% better food, 20% better service, and 20% better uh, atmosphere? And get a load of this. I don't know. I mean, this is providential in my opinion. We just decided that we were going to pay people 20% more. Wow. And what we told them was we're, we're going to pay this forward. You know, we did a survey here in town. Uh, our folks uh, make over ten. Uh, I'm sorry, make over eleven fifty an hour, and in the bakery they make twelve fifty an hour. And if you go and you do a survey, that's more than twenty percent more. And that's even crazier because think about it, Eric. I said I was worried about doing this because of the financial side of this, but we're paying twenty percent more now. Mm. And so the financial hurdle was even harder to beat, <laughs> but it made me feel more comfortable because I didn't want the customer to know who the helpers were and who the helpees were. And I didn't want the helpees to feel like they were getting charity. Yeah. I, I don't think they wanted to, anybody to feel bad for them. I think that they wanted to feel good about their job. And there's a, a good, better, and great, the way you feel about your job is how much you put into it mm. and how you walk away at the end of the day thinking, I did that great. Mm. And I think that that human dignity is one of the reasons why we're on the path to success here. Mm. I love it. So how is uh, Deviate doing today? Are, are those concerns you had early on, are those, are those present, the, the issues that you were afraid of, or are you, have you surpassed those issues? Oh, I mean, every day is a little different, and this is require it requires a better relationship, uh, a deeper relationship, and managing people that are pretty fragile. Uh, and so, uh, it's taking way more time, and I spend lots of hours here. But uh, I'm not saying it's perfect, but it is 
it's unbelievable how the plan is coming together. Mm. We have, uh, you could go on, just go on Yelp, check it out, you know, and uh, I think the guests really enjoyed it. And oh, by the way, there's a stigma about addiction where you have, you feel personally unsafe because you know that there's probably a record that comes along with, with these folks. The first seven days that we were open, there's tumbleweeds and crickets in here. No one showed up. Really? I didn't, I didn't plan on doing any kind of marketing at all because I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to try to look like we were profiting off of the misfortune mm-hmm. of others. And uh, because I want uh, Christianity to be part of what we do, I didn't, I'm a human being and I screw up and scream across the line when we have, you know, 12 minute checks and I'm freaking out and I make a mistake every now and then. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to, you know, besmirch the the Christian community by being a dumb person, you know? Uh, So I I really didn't want to do PR and I cried about it. I cried and cried and cried because I was either going to lose all the money that we had into this because the only thing I could think of was to go to the media and start trying to get the word out. And I had to really struggle with that and we ended up doing it and we got people to come in. Okay. But it's been, it was tough. It was tough sledding. So where are you today? Is it, is it, uh, okay. Yeah. It's starting to come in. Uh, the first five months we lost money. We made $11 last month. Nice. We're, we're in the black. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But we, but we're looking at it, you know, like a triple bottom line, you know, uh, sure. Financially, we have to be solvent and we're, we're working on that every day and it's getting a little bit better. And I would say we're at a C minus there right now. Um, social impact, it's through the roof. Mm. I can tell you hundreds of stories that just warm my heart about tell how me, just having a meaningful relationship uh, at work can work. Tell me one story. Give me one story of the social impact your, your restaurants had. Um, well, okay. So we have a gentleman here that we hired and uh, he was here. Uh, he, he came through us from drug, drug court and he came to us and uh, he's been a star at what he does every day. Well, no, the first day he was terrible. I had him in the kitchen <laughs> and he said at the end of the day, he says, I'm so sorry, but I'm, I'm deathly afraid of being back here. I feel like I'm going to hurt someone or I'm going to get hurt. I can't do this. So I said, well, I made a spot for him and I put him in the front. He was instantly great with people. He knew exactly where to be. He was awesome. Well, after two months, he says, hey, tomorrow, you're not in until 10. I saw the schedule, but can you come in at nine? And I said, yeah. He goes, please don't ask me what it's about, but just just please come in. So I'm getting ready the next day, and my wife says, you're early. And I said, yeah, you know, he, you know, the guy that works for us, I'll keep his name silent. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, but he wants me to come in uh, an hour early, and he says that he wants me to be there, and I just am trying to honor what he says. And he goes, I know the secret. My, my, my wife goes, I know the secret. Oh. And I laughed. And she goes, he asked me to be there at 9, too. So my wife and I get there, and as we're walking in, um, I see the state car drive up. And out of it, the lieutenant governor of Kentucky gets out and says, hey, do you know why I'm here? I said, no, I have no idea. One of your staff members is so blown away by DV8 that she wanted it. He wanted it to be recognized. And so we're here to give you a state award. Oh man. And you know, I mean, I, I love that because 
a guy that a lot of people would push off to the side, has the wherewithal to get a, get a hold of the lieutenant governor of a state and to make a difference and make us feel good just for the small little things that we're doing. And I mean that. I mean, we're only doing what we've been blessed to have. Mm. And for him to recognize us in a way that is meaningful, that I believe that only a half a percent of the population can make that happen. Oh, and I'm just so proud that it propelled him to do something like that, to show off how talented he is and how he could get stuff done. It just made my, my heart swing, really sing, right? I'm curious, where are you today uh, emotionally uh, on a scale from one to 10, where you've been in your life uh, because of the work you're doing? Maybe not as, as profitable as you've been with other ventures in other parts of your life, but where are you uh, on a scale of like how you feel every day when you get out of bed? Yeah, I, I mean, hey, I you know to be more direct about my past, I I, I felt like at Disney I got uh, I got a lot of the same perks that you know movie directors and producers got. I got to fly first class. I got to stay in Ritz Carlton's. I had some dude holding up a sign saying Perez when I got off an airplane, and I was miserable. Mm. I didn't like it. I w- I felt like I was missing something. And, uh, I got to hang out with really cool people, really smart people. And I, and I was not fulfilled. Uh, I am literally busting tables every single day. I am busting my hump. I am working physically as hard as I've ever worked since I've been, I was 23 years old and I I have not taken $1 out of this business and I've never been so fulfilled. Mm. I've never been so vocationally blessed. <laughs> I, I would do this until I die if I could. And uh, I wished I would have had the guts to, you know, probably take my wife's faith uh, sooner. Uh, and uh, it's the best thing vocationally I've ever done. That was the answer I was hoping for, Rob. So <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I cry and, you know, I am emotionally tired and, you know, I've had 11 days off and, you know, and that's when we traveled to California to see family mm. in, in a year. Wow. And I am spent and really close to crying every second, but it, it's been worth it. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, anything we haven't discussed up to this point, Rob, before going to the speed round, something you were hoping we would discuss uh, one final bomb of knowledge before we, we rock out the speed round. <laughs> You know, hey, this business is such a special business. I don't want anybody ever to think that I, uh, because of the addiction issues and because of all that that I spoke about, I am so for this industry. I love it so much. It's Mm. been so good to me. And I just encourage anybody that, that doesn't mind working hard but wants to really think about it to just do it and figure out your niche and dig in and it can be great for you and great for your family and great for your soul. Beautiful. Awesome. Uh, Great conversation up to this point. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. Rob, you're crushing it, dude. I'm loving this. To be unstoppable, most restaurants require a little extra capital from time to time. It happens, right? Uh, When you need funding to like renovate or buy equipment or manage cash flow, you don't have time to just track down financial statements or wait weeks for a decision. And that is where Cabbage can help. Cabbage gives small businesses access to a line of credit of up to $150,000. And if you apply online, you'll get a decision right away, which is pretty awesome. 
Since Cabbage is a line of credit, you can take the exact amount you need. You'll never have to reapply to take out additional loans, and you only pay for the funds you use. Yeah, you're impressed, and I haven't even gotten to the impressive part. Cabbage has helped more than 130,000 businesses from every industry with over $4 billion in funding. Like, awesome. Cabbage is A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau and was named a Forbes Top 100 company not once, but twice. Check out Cabbage at Cabbage with a K dot com slash restaurant unstoppable and you'll get a $50 gift card when you qualify. That's Cabbage, K-A-B-B-A-G-E dot com slash restaurant unstoppable. Line of credit is subject to credit approval, C terms and conditions. All Cabbage business loans are issued by Celtic Bank, a Utah chartered industrial bank member, FDIC. Everyone loves processing invoice after invoice. It's the best. (laughs) Not really. Just the sight of a filing cabinet is enough to make you sick, right? It doesn't have to be that way. With Sorcery, there's no more manually processing invoices by hand and no more cutting check after check. With Sorcery, you can organize all of your accounts digitally, scan your invoices, and pay your vendors with just one click. It is easy. Sorcery offers fully managed accounts and statements reconciliation, so you no longer spend hours on the phone with your vendors and banks that stinks. You now have the peace of mind knowing your accounts are being taken care of, and you can get back to work doing what you love, running unstoppable restaurants. Go to GetSorcery.com, that's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com, or call one 6683006691 mention restaurant unstoppable and receive 10% off your first 3 months and say goodbye to your old filing cabinet and hello to the digital world with sorcery ap automation we're back and the first question i have for you rob is what is your it factor a habit a trait a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success 100% it's passion. Passion. I mean, passion to learn, passion to figure it out, passion to do it. Even if you don't know, if you have passion, people will follow you. Oh, passion, yeah. passion, passion. I love it. What is your biggest weakness? Patience. I can't, I can't wait for an answer. I want results now and it's a detriment. It's the worst detriment I have and it's, it's, it's a fatal flaw. What? is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process. I look for someone that knows themselves, knows who they are and knows what they want. I, I love people that I love to work with people that are very self-aware. How do you know they're self-aware? Well, you have to make assumptions. I mean, the one good thing about our restaurant industry is as, a, as managers, a lot of us do table checks. I could have six people that I go and check on uh, and I have maybe 20 seconds to determine if they like anything by their body language, what their plate looks like. Uh, I have to make fast blink decisions like the Malcolm Gadwell thing. Mm-hmm. And I do that in my interviews. I try to profile the best I can and determine, I mean, at this point, I could pretty much take 10 plates to a table and I could put them down exactly in front of whoever is at that table without asking them. Mm. So I feel like I've gotten better at it. And I'm not always right by, by any stretch. But I use that ability and that skill that I've tried to hone in asking questions of people about looking at their past. I mean, the best 
the best uh, predictor of the future is their past. Mm-hmm. So I just use their resume, who they are, how they present, you know, and, and try to, to play off those okay. cues. Uh, what is your biggest challenge today? Uh, the literal challenge that I have right now is uh, an overbuilt restaurant market here in Lexington. And it's dramatic. And yeah. we're having to try to figure out how to reinvent ourselves. And I'm really tied up with DVA. I have very little of me. And it is the most difficult environment, business environment I've ever been in. Mm. Uh, how are you overcoming that? Well, uh, I think by planning again, having uh, you know some sort of direction, trying to pass that direction to everybody. Uh, but but in a sales decline environment, we're having to lose people and not have enough labor hours. And so I'm having to deal with not being perfect, you know, in mm-hmm. service and food sometimes, and it's killing me. Mm. Uh, and so uh, we have to figure out how to downsize, but in a way that the guests still love us. Mm. And it's difficult. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, well, uh, I don't think you're alone there, my friend. Uh, everyone's struggling across the boards today. Uh, it's, it's just, like you said, oversaturation and uh, not enough employees that are inter- or people just out there interested in the industry. So it's tough. I don't know how we're going to get through it, but you're not alone for what it's worth. Yeah. Uh, share yeah. one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. Uh, I, I still think that it, it's about your number. You know, everything that you do, every effort you put forth, Everything that you say, try to figure out how to be a 10 at it. Mm. And if you keep on working your craft every day, this restaurant industry is a craft. And at, at every level, it's a craft. And you can figure out a better way to dishwash, mm-hmm. a more efficient way to do it. You can figure out how to get to the next level by being efficient at your dishwashing job and start doing prep. And if you have that, if you have that and you want to be a 10, I promise it always comes back to you. And by the way, even the people that you put at the bottom of the food chain at the, in, a, in a restaurant, and it's not true, is the dishwashers. I know in a kitchen when the dishwasher is good, it raises everybody else's oh, yeah. uh, level of performance. I know it. Absolutely. And so, so is, yeah, I think that that's my mantra. Is there a way that you get your people to check in with themselves every day to know where they are when they get to work, what number they're at, and how to get to attend? Is there like a practice or like a, a way to like – to trigger that self check-in? Yeah. My, my deal is, is that most people are motivated by money. So I said, Hey, if you're an hourly person or a tip person, you want to make more money today? Here's how you do it. You, you know, while let's go look at your credit card tips, you want a 22% instead of a 20% tip. Okay. This is how you act instead of going to the table. And I try to be specific about it instead of delivering all the food and let's say it's burgers and fries, instead of delivering the food and making the guest ask for ketchup, why don't you just bring ketchup before? What, what, I know that sounds crazy, but think about it. You get French fries and you forget to ask for the ketchup. And then by the time you get the server, they come back, it's three minutes. By the yeah. time they come back with the ketchup, it's another three minutes. Do you like your fries cold or are they hot? Yeah, I hear you, man. You know? Yeah. But if you, you, can, if you can anticipate what the guest needs... It's gigantic. Mm. I mean, if you could pre-program what you do before the guest needs it, it becomes service is magic. People pay for magic. They pay extra for magic. But you've got to be able to put in that extra effort. You have to be able to put in that extra standard. 
you have to be passionate enough to figure it out, not just get by. Yeah. Uh, the next question is, what is one uncommon standard of service you have or you, you've taught your team? And I'm just going to throw in uh, be proactive because uh, I feel like that's what you just said. You kind of compounded off the last. Do you want to add anything to that? No, I really think that it's just planning out the whole service sequence and try to anticipate the need of the guest so that they don't have to ask for anything. Beautiful. At DVA right now, what I'm trying to do is convince the staff that when someone gets a general so taco, it's messy, man. What about grabbing four or five napkins when you're going up to pick up a little piece of straw paper and dropping it off and just saying, hey, look, I'm not judging you for being messy, but our tacos are messy. Here's a few more napkins. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know you how care. far that goes? It just shows you care. You know, yeah. when there's a little woman that has a gigantic chicken salad salad and you know that she's not going to eat it all, halfway through the meal, just drop off a to-go lid. Yeah. She thinks you're the best thing since sliced bread. Yeah, absolutely. You know, she does. It's so powerful. And it's those small little things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So what is one book uh, that will make us a better person or restaurant owner if you just could lay one on us? Uh, you're going to think this is cheesy, but I, I, I'm finding as I get older, I neglected the most published book in the whole wide world, but the Bible. Oh, it's probably one of the best leadership books out there. Um, I don't really consider myself to be super religious, but you think about what uh, that book is about. It's just a, it's it's laying out values and how to lead and how to. I mean, that's. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, and even more specifically, I mean, think about uh, some people's you know belief about a Messiah would be that he would be a king, you know, and he would come in and conquer everybody and take away all the problems and lead with force, but. You know, for me, and I don't want to get really caught up in the religion thing. I don't. I want everybody to have their own free will. But to watch Jesus, who changed the world, really, you know, and he came in, you know, as a servant, and he served. And the things that confounded people was the ability to love the unloved. Mm. I mean, and in the restaurant industry, if you kind of just think about it, I need to be a server, even if it's a tax collector, you know, and tax collectors in Jesus's days were hated. But he hung out with the, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and the unloved. Mm. And he was able to put himself in a, in a position of service that's just so wonderful. And I think it's the book that we should pay more attention to, not only for the spiritual message, but for the specific restaurant knowledge. Mm. I think it's awesome. <laughs> and it sounds cheesy, probably, like, oh, the dude wants to just talk about you know the Bible and he wants to fit it in. But I'm serious about it. It's servant leadership. That's yeah. what Jesus really displayed. Absolutely. So what is one online resource that you're leveraging? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, I don't know if this is exactly what you're looking for, but uh, we have all of our POSs so that we see real-time information. And so at any of my locations, I can see when you sit down, I can see what you're ordering. I can see at a glance how the server's services, what their tip percentages is. I, I can see if there's a comp real time. Mm -hmm. And I can see, uh, you know, what, what we order by hour, how many guests we have per hour. And it just helps me. So to learn my business on a granular level that I absolutely love it. It's changed the way I think. So are you using an app uh, associated with your POS to do this? Yeah, yeah, it's a micros product called Pulse. Okay. And uh, I could pull up, you know, between the cameras that I have on my phone uh, of each restaurant, I could also see what's happening in the registers. Okay. And it, 
I think that restaurant business is, is partially accountability too. Mm-hmm. And uh, just knowing that like now I get texts saying, hey, this comp was for this. This is why it happened before it happens, oh, before cool. I see it. And, and it, it just puts people in a position of not only knowing that they're being scored, so the level of performance always rises mm. when you have good accountability. Interesting. So what is one piece of technology, uh, maybe another piece of technology uh, you've adopted in your restaurant uh, that's influenced operations, efficiencies, communication that you're really excited about? Uh, you can oh, say gosh, it was pulse probably twice. that. Yeah, you know, it's probably the thing I just told we'll just, you. We'll double but up online, on that. I struggle with the online thing. I'm not sure I use anything really uh, like a resource. I mean, I guess like uh, our hiring, we, you know, uh, we have all of our manuals at Saul Good uh, online now. Uh, we do all online onboarding uh, where we get uh, a personality assessment on how they would fit in. Is it uh, an internet so, that you developed? No, no, no. This is a, this is a, a top, uh, people matter. Okay. And that's been great. And hot schedules is great too, because then you give your staff the ability to trade out shifts immediately. And I can, you know, right now for a shift that's going to happen in an hour, I can approve a, uh, a shift change for someone that has a hot date, you know okay. what I mean? Or a test that so, they didn't want to work at. So it gives them all the flexibility that they want. Yeah. And that's really changed the staff's life. Yeah, I think labor management software is one of those key things, maybe next to a POS system, that if you're not leveraging, it just saves so much time and it improves communication so greatly. Uh, it's one of those no-brainers. It pays for itself. Uh, people's, People Matters has been mentioned a couple times in the show, but not as often as Hot Schedule. So what exactly, what are the, the features and the benefits of People's People Matter? Uh, why is that worth considering adopting that technology? Okay, so it hasn't really worked specifically like that for us, but what... People Matters does is it takes you paperless. Okay. It gives access uh, to people uh, at home to get stuff done. You don't have to pay them to do it. Uh, and it also gives you the ability to, uh, to file things uh, electronically, right? Okay. Um, in addition, it does give, uh, People Matters gives you a chance to evaluate them based on, you know, uh, real algorithms that work best with your business. And uh, lastly, it tracks all of the folks that are available for tax credits. And at the end of the year, you're supposed to be able to get your tax credits. That hasn't happened for me, but, uh, but that's the idea behind it. And I think that it's a good program. It isn't cheap. You know, uh, we spend, uh, you know, a good chunk of money every quarter on it, but it's been good. I will tell you that hot schedules made the biggest difference of anything, I guess, online that, that you had mentioned because it just gives you the forecasting. It gives you the instant information. It gives the ability for the staff to be able to shift, uh, see their schedule, change out, contact each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we really want to put scheduling in the hands of the staff members after we make their schedule. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be involved in it. We don't yeah. want to cover shifts. Mm-hmm. So how I'm curious, how are you justifying the expense of people's matter? Like, are you getting a return? Do you think it's, if, if it's worth the expense if, if it's expensive? Um, I think people matters is close. Uh, I think that, that the value of it is, is that it's paperless and we can get things at it, but it's also at the detriment. If I can't go in and take a, a test and walk it over to a manager and say, how did you let someone out of, uh, of the food test with less than a 95%, you got to make them take it over, Yeah. but it's harder to get at electronically 
and you don't have it where you can just open up a file and review. If someone's not doing the right thing, it's harder to go through and say, did we train them right? Mm. And I know that that's, it's the same coin and it's just two sides of the coin. It's good because you don't have it, but it's bad, you know, not having that, that paper file that is there all the time that you could go back when we do a new menu, uh, you know, addition, we have them take tests. Well, if I can't see that test, it freaks me out. Yeah, no, I hear you. You know, that's interesting. I, I mean, people, people matters has come up a couple of times and it's something I'm not really familiar with. So I want to go a little deeper there. I, I appreciate you getting specific. Uh, this is the last question. It's a doozy. You ready for it? Yes, sir. All right. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and uh, just for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? What do you know to be true? Uh, You know, uh, believe in something bigger than you. Uh, Put your family uh, as a priority and serve people. I love it. Uh, man, this has been a great conversation. Uh, we wrap up every interview by calling somebody out. So who's one independent restaurant operator, somebody you admire and believe would make a great guest mentor on the show. Oh goodness. I mean, literally there are so many, but you know, I marvel, uh, at a group of folks that are here in Lexington. Uh, it's bluegrass hospitality. They've been on the cutting edge of things that I thought they were crazy for doing, and, and they've been right every time. Mm. They're a steakhouse that went into uh, doing and focusing in on to-go. While their experience is awesome inside, they decided to do to-go, and I thought that that was going to denigrate their core product. How can you sell a $35 steak if you're selling it to-go? Mm. I thought they were crazy. Well, now it's something like 28 percent of some of their restaurants total take and it's grown into a business where they've had to open up different restaurants like adding a kitchen onto their restaurant just for to go that's crazy and they're thriving in an environment that is declining in a big way and they're brilliant i mean uh a lot of people give credit to to brian mccarty for the the forethought and the and the marketing, but Bruce uh, Drake, I know is part of that process too. I don't exactly know who comes up with all those ideas, but I marvel at their foresight and I marvel at their ability to kind of forecast. All right. They're impressive. The guys over at bluegrass hospitality, I'm coming after you and let the folks at home know if you want to follow what you're doing, uh, maybe uh, come join your team or uh, just ask a question about a piece of advice that you, you offer today. What's the best way to connect with you? Uh, my cell phone, anybody could call me or text me on my cell phone. And I'm, I'm, I'm always, uh, available for someone that loves this industry. I'll answer any question. Uh, I'll try to take any time I can, but eight, five, nine, three, two, one, 5,600. Wow. Use it, man. All right. Open the floodgates. <laughs> yeah, go for it. All right. This is episode, uh, four fifty. Eight. Head over to restaurant unstoppable.com slash four fifty eight or Rob Perez restaurantunstoppable.com slash Rob Perez, R-O-B-P-E-R-E-Z for a summary of today's discussion, a link to the tools and services recommended in books and Rob's contact information right there. Rob, thank you so much for taking the time to sit with me, to share your story, to share your, your, your advice, your recommendations. My friend, there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. 
Well, there's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Rob Perez crushing it, dropping bombs of knowledge all over the place. I think there's three big lessons, three major takeaways for me in this episode. The first, know your number. Know where you are every day. Uh, when you're walking through those doors, do a mental check. Where's my energy level? Where am I right now? Where do I need to be? Uh, you will never have people, uh, r- I guess, rise above you and your energy. So if you're the leader, it's up to you to set that tone, to set that energy level. So know your number. Number two, make the most of every moment because you don't know what's going to come from that moment. So in this example with Rob, uh, he could have been thrown an opportunity and easily said, well, that's not my job. I'm not interested. Uh, thanks, but I think you're confusing me with somebody else. Instead, he said, all right, uh, let's roll with this. Let's, let's see what happens. And he made the most of the opportunity. And because of it, he skyrocketed to the top of that corporation. And then lastly, uh, social enterprises. There are some tips within social. Blah, 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 blah. There were some tips within social enterprises. Uh, I think the first one, uh, not lowering your standards for those people in the social enterprise. And number two, uh, focusing on human dignity. And the funny thing is, I don't think that's good advice on just the, on just social enterprises. That's just good advice. Uh, don't lower your standards. Uh, set those standards. Keep them high. And you know, help your people rise to those standards. Uh, that's good advice no matter what situation you're in. And then again, human dignity. At the end of the day, we all just want to feel like we're loved and that like we belong and like we, we matter. That's just Maslow's hierarchy of needs right there. And that applies to, again, every restaurant. So great stuff today. Awesome conversation. Thanks again, Rob Perez. And like always, please do reach out to me, Eric, at restaurantunstoppable.com, social media, Eric Cacciatore on Instagram and Twitter, Facebook slash Restaurant Unstoppable. Tell me who you want to hear from. Tell me what you want covered. I'll get an expert on the show. And I think I want to take the podcast. I don't think I know. I want to take the podcast on the road again. As this is going live, I'm wrapping up. I only got two more weeks left in Thailand and then uh, I'm back on the East Coast, probably spending a month in Maine, maybe doing some interviews in Portland, Maine, and uh, along New England. But I want to head out west, maybe by way of Chicago, Denver, uh, maybe my head up to Montana, Bozeman area, and then I want to go to Washington and go south. That's my dream trip at this moment in time. So if you can make that trip happen, if you have a floor I can put my air mattress on, or a, a couch, or a spare bedroom, or a uh, a driveway. I can park my car so I can sleep in my car. Let me know. I'm going to come to your city and uh, I appreciate the support in advance. And uh, that's all for today, guys. Thank you so much for sticking around this long until next time. Peace out.